0: Hi, and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. This is episode two of A Royal Scandal. If you haven't already done so, I suggest you pause here and go back and listen to episode one first. As with the first episode, a trigger warning. This episode includes graphic details of violence and discussion of suicide. In the last episode, we found ourselves in St. James's Palace during the reign of King George III. One night in 1810, the king's fifth son, Prince Ernest Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, is savagely wounded with a sabre, and the duke's page, Joseph Sellis, is found dead with his throat. Cut. The jury that assembled two days later gathered witness and character testimonies from the household servants and Cellis’s wider acquaintances. They concluded Celis had attacked the duke in his bed, fled when the duke raised the alarm, and then killed himself. But a closer look at those testimonies suggests that perhaps this wasn't such an open-and-shut case after all. We heard in the last episode that the testimonies painted a contradictory picture of Sellis's character. In his earlier life, he was a vocal anti-monarchist, but in the decade or so since working for the Duke, he was regarded as a civil man not prone to violence. The one blemish on his service was a bitter rivalry with his fellow page, Cornelius Neal. As for the night of the attack, remember... Crucially, we only have the Duke's word for how he received his wounds, as there were no other witnesses. In this episode, we dive deeper into the witness testimonies to provide a fuller account of the night and come to our own conclusions about what really happened. On the day of the 30th of May, 1810, the Duke of Cumberland was in Greenwich, a naval town on the Thames in the east of London. Back in central London, Joseph Sellis was enjoying a day off with his family. He went to the market, and then took a walk in the park with his wife Mary-Anne and their children. According to the later testimony of his wife, Joseph was in a cheerful mood that day. He was recovering from a bad cold he had had for the past month, and one of their children was also recovering from sickness. The family ate supper together in their apartment in St. James's Palace. Mary Ann Sellers recalled that during the meal, the conversation revolved mostly around her husband's interest in the clothes their children would wear for the king's birthday the next week. As usual, Joseph drank beer with his meal. He never drank spirituous liquors. Despite the demands of his work, Joseph was always at home with his wife and children in the evenings. His wife claimed he hadn't spent a single evening away from her since their last child was born eight months previously. But his job did require him, regularly, to leave his family at the end of the evening to go and sleep in the Duke's apartments, so that he was on hand if needed. On the 30th of May, it wasn't actually Selous's turn to be page-in-waiting and sleep next door to the Duke, but he went to the Duke's apartments anyway, as he had to be up early in the morning to travel with the Duke to the Royal Castle at Windsor. Before he left his family for the night, Celis asked his wife to cook veal the next day and told her he would bring his dirty laundry back for her. According to Mrs. Sellis, then, her last hours with her husband were a perfectly normal, unremarkable evening. Her husband had been in a good mood, was as dutiful and sober as ever, and was busy planning ahead for the events of the next few days. There is nothing in Mrs. Sellis's testimony to hint that her husband, just a few hours later, would violently assault his employer and commit suicide. But... Was Mrs. Sellis a reliable witness? There was no one to corroborate Sellis's mood and conversation on the final day of his life, but in her testimony Mary Ann Sellis did give one key detail that was contradicted by several other witnesses. She claimed her husband didn't leave his family that evening until about 10 p.m. However, Sellis was seen in the Duke's apartments long before this by several other servants, which begs the question, how much can we trust the rest of Mary Anne's testimony? According to housemaid Margaret Jones, Sellis visited the housemaid's room at about eight in the evening, and asked her to put sheets on his bed. He also went to the porter's room, where he found the porter, Benjamin Smith, in company with another servant, Matthew Henry Grassland. Sellis informed them that the Duke intended to go to Windsor in the morning, and asked which of them was also going. As the evening light dimmed, the Duke's household servants went about their usual routine. Housemaid Sarah Varley walked through each room of the Duke's apartments, closing the windows and shutters. She also shut all the doors connecting the string of rooms in the apartments together. Meanwhile, Margaret Jones, having made up Sellis' bed, found herself at about 9pm in the Page's room, from where she claimed to spot Sellis going into the Duke's room to dress the returned Duke in readiness for an evening engagement. Shortly after this, at some point between 9 and 10, Sarah Varley went into the now empty Duke's bedroom and removed the ornamental bolsters and coverlid from his bed. She placed them in a neighbouring closet and locked the closet, leaving the key in the door. By now, Margaret Jones had progressed to the sitting room of the Duke's steward, which she was tidying. While she worked, she left the door to the sitting room open. This door lay directly opposite the door of Sellis' bedroom, which also happened to be open. At about a quarter past ten, Margaret saw Sellis again, this time in his room. They had a brief conversation about the Duke's plans to go to Windsor before Celis wished her good night and closed his bedroom door. By that time, Celis had removed his coat, waistcoat, and shoes, and undrawn the curtains on his bed. As far as Margaret could tell, Celis was going to bed. And yet, half an hour later, Celis was seen again, not in his room, and not asleep. As was his usual routine, late in the evening, the under-butler, Thomas Strickland, went up to the Duke of Cumberland's bedroom to place the Duke's cup by his bedside. On entering the room, he found Sellis there. This was about ten to eleven at night, over half an hour after Margaret Jones had seen Sellis getting ready for bed. Sellis was now wearing his coat again, but Strickland did not notice what else he was wearing, though it is likely he would have noticed if the other man wasn't wearing shoes. Sellis was holding a shirt in his hand, and Strickland described his expression as earnest, but with a smile on his face. The two men did not talk, and his task complete, Strickland left the room. He was the last person that we know of who saw Celis alive. Meanwhile, also just before 11pm, the kitchen maid, Anne Ruddock, was whiling away the time in a room next to the kitchen with another woman servant, when they were surprised to hear somebody moving along the adjoining passage, going up the steps from the kitchen to the pages room. They thought it sounded like the step of Margaret Jones, with whom Anne Ruddock shared a room, though they could not think why she was up so late at night. When Ruddock went to bed an hour later, she woke up her roommate and asked her what she had been walking about the passage so long for. But Margaret was woken for no good reason. She insisted. She had been in bed the whole time. The mystery passage shuffler was never identified, but despite Anne's implications in her testimony, it is unlikely to have been Celis on a dark mission. At just about the same time that Anne Ruddock heard someone in the passage, Thomas Strickland saw Celis in the Duke's bedroom. Could it have been a mystery person X involved in the night's events? Or maybe it was Cornelius Neal, the page in waiting for the night, awaiting the Duke's return. The Duke arrived back at the palace just before midnight, and was assisted in preparing for bed by Neil. Neil testified that he shut and locked the Duke's bedroom door leading into the adjoining yellow room, and stayed with the Duke until the Duke had got into bed. The Duke asked Neil to wake him at seven in the morning. Neil went out by the door leading to the bedroom for the page in waiting, and after ordering a maid to light a fire at six, went to bed himself. The apartments now lay in silence. Until about a quarter to three in the morning, when the Duke's screams rent the air, he was discovered by Neil bleeding heavily from sabre wounds to the head, neck, hands, and legs. We rely entirely on the Duke's own testimony for how he received these wounds. According to the Duke, he had been fast asleep when he was suddenly struck twice on the head. Awaking, he was struck twice more. Alarmed by the blows and a hissing noise, he claimed to have believed a bat had somehow flown into the room and was beating him about the head. Presumably, the bat would have come down the chimney, as the duke's doors and windows were shut. There was only one lamp burning in the room, and dimly, as it did not cast enough light to allow the duke to see who, or what, was attacking him. But it was light enough for him to see blood splattered across his bedside table and to catch the glimmer of a sabre slashing above him. Realising he was under attack, the duke tried to climb out of bed, suffering a cut to the right thigh in the process. Finally out of bed, the duke cried out, Neil! Neil! I am murdered! Only a wainscot partition, a thin wooden wall, separated Neil's room from that of the duke's, and yet Neil had apparently not heard a sound until this point. He had not been awoken by the duke's cries, or the sound of steel slashing and striking flesh. Having been called by name, though, Neil, by his own account, sprang into action. He immediately got out of bed and found the duke, bleeding, standing in his bedroom door. On being told there was a murderer in the room, Neil, again by his own account, boldly ran into the bedroom and seized a poker from the fireplace. He found the room empty, but the door to the yellow room was wide open, despite the fact that Neil himself had locked it only hours earlier. Advancing through that doorway, Neil stumbled upon a sword lying on the floor. He picked it up, and asked the Duke's permission to pursue the disarmed attacker. The Duke, though, would not hear of it. Neil must stay and help him. So instead of tracking down the assailant before he could get away, Neil helped the Duke walk downstairs to the porter's room, where they instructed the porter, Benjamin Smith, not to let anyone leave the building. Why the Duke had to go himself on this errand was never explained in the testimonies. With severe wounds to the legs, neck and head, the Duke must surely have only been able to walk slowly. In going to see the porter himself, He delayed, rather than aided, the search for the culprit and the tending of his own wounds. But downstairs to the porter's room the Duke went, and having conveyed his orders, he limped all the way back again to his own bedroom. On the way, the Duke and Neil came across Neil's wife, who was the housekeeper. According to Neil, they happened to come across her. According to Mrs. Neil, her husband called for her. Either way, Mrs. Neal was one of the first servants up and about, and was dispatched by the Duke to wake up the rest of his household, and in particular, his page, Joseph Sellis. Meanwhile, the Duke, now faint from loss of blood, was helped back into bed. While he rested, Neal began to investigate. A door at the foot of the Duke's bed led to a passage, beyond which were three closets, the water closet, i.e. the toilet, a boot-room, and finally the closet in which the maid Sarah Varley had placed the bolsters and coverlid from the duke's bed. Varley had locked this closet and left the key in the lock, but Neil now discovered that the closet was open and the key was on the inside of the lock. Inside the closet, as well as the coverlid and bolster, he found a lantern, a bottle of water, an empty scabbard, and a pair of slippers. Inside the slippers was written a name. Celis. Sarah Varley would later testify that none of these items had been in the closet when she placed the coverlet and bolster inside. The deduction was easy. Sellis had selected the closet as a hiding place and had locked himself inside until the optimum moment to strike. In his testimony, to support this theory, Neil argued that the attacker must have hidden in the closet, as he was himself a very light sleeper, and he would certainly have heard anyone walking along the passage past his bedroom door to get to the Duke's room. Though this does not explain how Neil had slept through the sound of a man being viciously attacked with a sword in the very next room until he was called by name. On returning to the Duke's bedroom, Neil and the Duke took a closer look at the sword that Neil had found in the doorway. It turned out to be the duke's own regimental sword. By luck, Neil knew who had had possession of that sword just the day before. He swore he had seen it in the room of, you've guessed it, Joseph Sellis. According to Neil, Sellis had taken out the duke's uniform and sword a few days earlier to prepare them for a regimental inspection, but when this did not take place the uniform had been returned. The sword, according to Neil, had not. Though quite why Sellis would leave it lying openly in his bedroom on the 30th of May for all to see is a mystery, and precisely when and why Neil had gone into Sellis' room on the 30th he did not say. Margaret Jones, incidentally, did not mention having spotted a sword when she made up Sellis' bed that evening. Be that as it may, the evidence that Neil had collected— was stacking heavily against Cellis, and Cellis himself could not be found. Three servants, Mrs. Neal, the porter-smith, and Henry Grassland, would undertake the task of finding Celis. But intriguingly, their accounts of the hunt differ from each other in several details. These differences may not be significant, for the most part, in determining what actually happened to the Duke and Cellis that night, but they are proof either that not everyone's memory was perfect, or that their intentions were not always truthful when giving testimony. According to Benjamin Smith, he was roused by the Duke and Neil at a quarter to three, and was met with the shocking sight of the Duke covered in blood. He testified that the Duke asked him to alarm the servants, and so he armed himself with a sword and went to instruct the sentries not to let anyone leave the building. On returning to the Duke's room, he met with Mrs. Neil and Henry Grasslyn. Mrs. Neal claimed she had been called at about three a.m. by her husband, and found him with the duke. The duke apparently also asked her to call the other servants, at which point she went with Smith, but not Grassland, to the bedroom door of cellis Grassland's account chimes with Mrs. Neal. He recounted he was woken at three a.m. by Mrs. Neal shouting, Get up! Get up! The duke is murdered! Grassland got up and took up his pistols. When he arrived at the sitting-room next to where the Duke was, Mrs. Neal asked him to go to find Sellis. Grasslin set off, not for Celis's bedroom, but for his family's apartment. Mrs. Neal and Smith, meanwhile, went to Celis's bedroom within the Duke's apartment. According to Mrs. Neal, she and Smith called for Sellis at his door, but there was no answer. The porter then tried to open the door, but found it was locked. So, in Mrs. Neal's words, He then knocked very violently on the door, but no one answered. Mrs. Neal then tried to open an adjacent door leading to the ballroom, but found it was locked on the other side, which according to her was very unusual. According to Mrs. Neal, she then immediately set off on a circuitous route around the string of rooms that made up the Duke's apartments to reach a second door leading to Sellers' bedroom. However, Smith testified that before this, Graslin returned, saying he could not find his way to the apartment of Sellis's family. So Smith went there himself. There he was told by one of the children that their father was definitely sleeping in the Duke's apartment that night. So back Smith went to the Duke's apartment, where he rejoined Mrs. Neal and Graslin. The three of them then set off the long way round the Duke's rooms to reach the second door to Sellis's bedroom. According to Mrs. Neal, Five or maybe six minutes had passed since they tried the first door. According to Smith, ten minutes had passed. Either way, all three remembered as they approached the bedroom door, hearing a guggling noise, like water bubbling in a man's throat. And here we come to the one vital difference between the three testimonies. According to Mrs. Neal, once they reached the door, the porter Smith looked into the room and exclaimed, "'Good God! Mr. Sellers has cut his throat!' But Smith remembers doing no such thing. Instead, both Smith and Grassland testified that all three of the servants had been frightened by the noise they heard coming from Sellis' room. They jumped to the conclusion that he too had been murdered and that the murderer might still be in the building. So instead of opening the door to investigate, the three quickly retreated to find help. This difference of accounts is crucial. According to Smith and Grassland, The final result of their search for Sellis was a belief that he, like the Duke, had been attacked, whereas, according to Mrs. Neal, Smith had actually seen Sellis in the act of committing suicide. The three servants gave their testimonies to the jury a little over twenty-four hours later, on the 1st of June. Had Smith somehow already forgotten, by this time, that he had seen such a horrific incident, or more likely was Mrs. Neal who shared her husband's resentment of Cellis attempting to shore up the circulating theory that Cellis had committed suicide by falsely claiming that an eyewitness definitely saw him killing himself the three testimonies realign in the end all three agreed that rather than going into Cellis's room they ran back through the apartments to seek assistance according to Grasslin the three called up a number of other servants including footman James Ball and underbutler Thomas Strickland, and told them that Sellers had been murdered and the Duke nearly so, an account which, if true, further undermines Mrs. Neal's claims that they already knew that Sellers had killed himself. After rousing the other servants, the three investigators sheltered in the porter's room for about ten minutes until the soldiers arrived and approached Sellis's room. Joseph Crichton, a sergeant in the King's Guard, was the senior soldier on duty that night. He recounted that he was called from the guard room at 3.30am, a a full 45 minutes after the Duke was attacked. With two or three other soldiers, he entered the apartments and found a good deal of blood on the stairs, a trail presumably left by the Duke when he went to find the porter. The soldiers forced their way into Selis' room and found him lying on his back on the bed, his throat cut. His shirt was very bloody. He wore pantaloons and stockings, but neither shoes nor coat. The wash basin had a little water in it, and looked as though someone had tried to wash bloody hands in there. Sellis was dead, but not cold. A razor with a white handle lay on the floor about two feet away from the bed. There was no sign of a struggle. Meanwhile, a throng of attendants had crowded into the Duke's room. Mr. Edward Holm, the King's surgeon, had arrived and, assisted by Neil, was dressing the duke's wounds. The duke was found to have several wounds on his head, one on his throat, a cut across the back of his right hand, and wounds on his left arm and the back of his right thigh. After tending to the duke, Home, along with Neil and the third-page James Powlett, inspected the closet where Neil had earlier found the incriminating evidence. Powlett then remained with the duke until the duke's brothers, including the eldest, the Prince of Wales, arrived. And that is the final note we have on the events of the night. The next morning, Sarah Varley, who had placed the Duke's coverlet and bolster in the closet the night before, testified that none of the discovered items, the scabbard, the water bottle, the slippers, the lantern, had been in the closet when she went in there. She was also asked to examine the lantern. She remembered it, she said. She had seen Celis with just such a dark square lantern in his room on his dressing table. She had also seen him carry it in the gallery. Sarah Varley, you may remember from the last episode, was also the maid who suspected Celis of hiding a poker behind the bed of the page in waiting, and was the maid who was told by Mrs. Neal that a pistol found in the same room was Celis' pistol, even though it actually belonged to Neal. While Sarah Varley may have been prejudiced against Celis on account of the poker and pistol discoveries, her claim that Celis was the owner of the lantern was corroborated by the kitchen maid Anne Ruddock. She claimed she had several times in the past seen Celis with a dark lantern. In contrast, however, Margaret Jones, the maid who had seen Celis several times on the evening of the 30th, was also asked to look at the lantern. She testified she had never seen it before, and furthermore, that she had never seen Celis with any lantern. This provided some credence to Celis' widow, who adamantly asserted that her husband never took a lantern with him to the Duke's apartments, and had certainly not taken a lantern with him on the evening of the 30th, as there was always a lantern burning on the staircase leading to the Duke's apartments. According to his wife, Celis only owned one lantern, and she produced it from their apartments as proof. However, even if Mrs. Sellis believed that her husband only owned one lantern, it is not beyond the bounds of possibility that he could have got hold of another. A coroner, Samuel Thomas Adams, arrived the same day to inspect the scene of Cellis's death. He confirmed the cause of death was the cut to his throat. He also found in the room Cellis's shoes, a pair of half-gaiters, and a key in Sellis's pocket that unlocked a door across the gallery, giving him access through the Duke's apartments. Finally, he rifled through the dead man's portfolio. It was he who found the two letters written by Sellis in 1808 and 1809 detailing grievances of the Duke and accusations against Neal, which were quoted in the last episode. These were published in full in the newspapers. The next day, the 1st of June, the jury assembled at St. James's Palace. The testimonies they heard from the servants regarding Sellis's character, his bad relationship with Neal, and to the events of the night you have already heard. As well as hearing the testimonies, the jury also examined the scenes of the crimes. In the Duke's bedroom, they found his nightcap soaked in blood. There was also blood over the bedclothes, the papers in the room, the prints and paintings, and spots of blood on the door to an anteroom. The door at the head of the bed had been damaged by the strikes of a sword. The room in which Sellis had died was equally horrifying.' The drawers, basin, basin basin-stand, and water within were all bloody. A bloody razor was also found. Celis's body had not been moved, giving the jury the ghastly opportunity to inspect it. They found him covered entirely in blood, except for the head and feet. After conferring for an hour or so, the jury returned a verdict of suicide. Celis was believed to have attacked his employer, and his attempt at murder failed, had instead killed himself. The motivation for the attack was not conjectured. Could it be that Celis's latent anti-monarchism had resurfaced after ten years in royal service? Or had it been a malicious attempt to frame his arch-rival Neil, the page in waiting for the knight, for the attack on the duke? Or was there some animosity between the duke and Celis? Some argument, some jealousy, some act-inspiring hatred, which Celis never revealed and which the duke now refused to disclose? In the end, the only man who may have known Sellis' motivation for attacking the Duke was the Duke himself, and the Duke never told. That is, assuming we accept the verdict, that Sellis had attacked the Duke. While a lot of the evidence pointed that way, not everyone was satisfied, and as much as the Duke no doubt wanted to draw a line under the events, the scandal-hungry press and public would not let the matter drop. Two years later, in 1812, two articles appeared in the publication The Independent Whig, which implied that Sellis had not committed suicide. The first article, published on the 30th of August, was in the form of a letter, in which the author asked to put a few home questions to the Duke, The writer had reasons, he wrote, to doubt that Sellus had met with his death by his own hands, and it was with the earnest desire of putting these doubts at rest that the writer now gave His Royal Highness the opportunity of answering a few home questions, to quote them in full. 1. Was it not the case, that it was not until repeated attempts had been made, could a jury be found willing to settle that Sellus had killed himself? Two, was not the razor, with which sellus is supposed to have killed himself, found at some distance from the body? Three, wasn't Celis's blood-drenched coat found at a distance from the body? Four, wasn't the basin placed at the side of the bed deliberately to catch the blood? Five, wasn't the body clearly cold when found? Six, wasn't sellus troubled with such a bad asthmatic cough that he could not have concealed himself for more than a half hour without being found? 7. The situation of the slippers in the closet in which it was supposed he hid himself. 8. Wasn't the neckcloth cut in pieces in such a way as to mitigate strongly against the idea of the deceased having cut his throat? Having posed his questions, the author wrote that he presumed they would all be answered in the affirmative, i.e., yes, the razor had been found at some distance, yes, the body was cold, yes, Celis did have a bad cough. Such being the case, continued the author, nothing could resist the inference that Celis was not his own murderer, from the deliberate arrangement of the clothes, the body, the basin, etc., the latter being placed as if to save the blood for ulterior purposes. The Duke did not respond to these questions, but the independent Whig was not done yet. A little under a month later, on the 27th of September, 1812, a second letter appeared in the same paper. This shorter piece expressed how shocked the author had been by the August letter, as the writer, quote, had never entertained any doubt about the blank, 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 being the murderer of Sellis. The proprietor of the independent Whig, Henry White, had cautiously avoided naming the alleged murderer, but the inference of the three blanks was clear enough. One name fit here neatly, the Duke of Cumberland. In March 1813, Henry White was brought to trial at the Court of King's Bench, charged of libel and with having attempted to deduce and vilify His Royal Highness in the estimation of society. The trial drew a great deal of attention, and the courtroom was excessively thronged, according to the newspapers. White's lawyer rather weakly tried to argue that while White had suggested that Sellers had not killed himself, no accusation of murder was thrown against any specific person, and he certainly never intended to cast any imputations against the Duke of Cumberland. White lost the case, and was sentenced to prison. Yet White's prosecution for libel did not clear the Duke of the suspicion of murder. Rumours and accusations continued to dog the Duke for years. And then, twenty years later, history repeated itself. In February 1830, the Duke of Cumberland was reported in the papers to be conducting an affair with a married woman, the wife of one of his own courtiers, Baron Thomas Graves. On hearing this news, Baron Graves killed himself. He slit his own throat with a razor blade. The resemblance to Celis' death was too striking to be overlooked, and the press and public leapt on the case. Had the Duke murdered Graves? If he had, did this suggest he had also killed Celis because of a love triangle? A satirical print I found on the British Museum site from February 1830 shows the Duke being accosted by the ghosts of Graves and Celis wielding razor blades. "'What? Another victim?' asks the ghost of Celis, above the darkly humorous caption, "'A voice from the graves.' Behind the duke are two books lying on a table, with the pointed titles Life of a Libertine and Secret Amours. The graves affair reignited the public fascination in the Celis case, just two years later, in 1832, the Duke found himself at the centre of yet another libel trial, this time over salacious claims published in a book titled Authentic Records of the Court of England for the Last 70 Years. These claims were a lot more explicit than the implications White had been jailed for 20 years earlier. The book alleged first that the Duke had been discovered by Selous in the act of, or on the verge of having, sex with Neil which under English law at the time was a crime punishable by the death penalty. The second allegation was that the Duke murdered Sellus, or was an accessory to his murder to prevent Sellus betraying what he had witnessed. A number of pieces of evidence were cited to support these claims. These included the allegation that Celis' body was found in such a position that he could not possibly have killed himself, and that Celis' quilted cravat had been found separate from his body, yet cut up, suggesting someone had first tried to cut through his throat with the caraton and had then removed it. It was also alleged that the Chief Coroner of England, Lord Ellenborough, fixed the inquest by examining all the witnesses first before they testified to the jury, and dismissed one jury when they refused to return a verdict. It concluded that the Duke had only escaped prosecution for murder because he was the son of a reigning monarch. Both the Duke and Cornelius Neal submitted affidavits, denying the charges in the strongest terms. The coroner who led the inquest also submitted an affidavit, giving a point-by-point refutation of the accusations made against the jury, and insisting everything was done impartially and by the book. Needless to say, these statements did not quash the rumours. The Duke may have found it easier to clear his name were he not so adept at behaving in reprehensible ways. Over the course of his life, he was accused of, amongst other things, having an incestuous affair with his sister, violently assaulting a woman, and riding down two young women as they walked in London. He also won little favour with the masses for his conservative politics. As an influential member of the House of Lords, the Duke energetically opposed the extension of civil and religious liberties. Perhaps most famously, and as any fans of the TV series Victoria will know, By the 1830s, the Duke was widely rumored to be plotting to murder his young niece Victoria and take the British throne for himself. In 1837, upon the death of the Duke's elder brother, King William IV, Princess Victoria, daughter of George III's fourth son, succeeded to the British throne. As a woman, she could not inherit the throne of Hanover, which had been twinned with Britain since 1714. Instead, her uncle, Ernest Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, the fifth and eldest surviving son of George III, became king of Hanover. His departure from Britain was not lamented. He was widely regarded as the most unpopular man in the country. For all that he was evidently not a pleasant man, can we really believe that Ernest Augustus killed his page Joseph Sellis? There were certainly several curious details of the night in question, and certain inconsistencies in the witness testimonies that, to my mind, were never adequately explained. For example, first, Celis was described as being in a sound, calm, even happy state of mind during the day and evening before his death. He was also regarded, by both his wife and outsiders, as being devoted to his children. Was this man really plotting murder the whole time? Secondly. Why had Celest not succeeded in killing the Duke? He came upon him, apparently, unarmed and sleeping. It strikes me as rather curious that he did not succeed in killing him, if that was his true intention. Instead, he only wounded him, badly on the surface, but not so bad that the Duke was unable to walk all the way downstairs immediately afterwards. My third point. Why had Neil not heard the attack until his name was called?' He claimed he was a light sleeper, and there was only a thin wainscot partition between his room and the Duke's. Had there, therefore, been an attack at all? My fourth point, why did the Duke and Neil delay the pursuit of the attacker? Rather than rousing the household immediately, the Duke personally went down to the porter. And it wasn't until forty-five minutes after the attack that the soldiers were called from the guardroom. And yet this whole time they supposedly believed a violent attacker was on the loose in the palace? My fifth point, is it not curious that it was specifically Neil, Cellis's arch-rival, the man Sellus had accused of theft and blackmail, the man Sellus claimed made his life in service to the Duke miserable and unbearable, who found all the evidence that incriminated cellis the items in the closet and the regimental sword? My sixth point, is it also not curious that the only person who claimed with certainty that Sellus was seen killing himself? was none other than Neil's wife, who, as we heard in the last episode, was also the only person among the palace servants to back up her husband's unfavourable description of Celis' character. And finally, my seventh point. The cut to Celis' throat was deep, down to the bone and right across the neck. Could he really have had the strength to do that himself? And having done so, would the razor really have fallen two feet away from him? I am left undecided. If Cellus had really been murdered, and if the Duke had really wounded himself, in some form of elaborate and very painful cover-up, then what was the motivation behind this attack? The rumours that circulated in the 19th century tended to revolve around love triangles. Perhaps the Duke was having an affair with Celis' wife. Perhaps the Duke was having an affair with Cellus or with Neil, and the attacks on the 30th of May were the result of jealousy or the discovery of betrayal. And yet, when all is said and done, perhaps the simplest explanation is the right one. Perhaps Celeste did lay in wait in a closet until the early hours of the morning, and then crept out to attack the man who had employed him for the past decade. But that simple explanation still leaves a very unsatisfying open question. Why would he do that? Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. I'll be back on Thursday the 7th of April with a brand new story from the Archives. Please subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts, so you don't miss it. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could spare just a few seconds to leave a rating or review of the podcast on your favourite app, and please do pass on the word about the podcast to your friends and family. Thank you very much for your support. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated, and produced by me, Georgina Asfow. Resources used in this episode include the British Newspaper Archive, the British Museum's online collection, and the Internet Archive. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod, and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod.